I'm Siham Cyrene, and you are here for Better Conversations. The emotional suffering that I have heard as I have made my way over the last 15 years is just astounding to me. And there has to be a better way. Leaders have to step up to the plate and really sharpen their interaction skills. And there are a lot of cases where I say, okay, you should not be in this role. You don't like it. There's something going on in your life, in your world that has produced a worldview that is not healthy for a workforce and not healthy for you nor the organization. What are your options? Too much suffering, just too much. Now there's a lot of happiness and there's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of energy, but I think about how much more powerful, influential, helpful, we could be in organizations and to the greater society, to the world in which we live and contribute, if we could get rid of even 30% of some of the pain and suffering, emotional pain and suffering and destruction that goes on in organizations, it is solvable. While we're gifted with speech, conversations, really good conversations, don't happen as much as we'd like. In this podcast, My guest and I deep dive into all the corners of what makes a conversation awkward and uncomfortable or warming and memorable. My guest is Dr. Rob Bogosian, the principal at RVB Associates, co-author of Breaking Corporate Silence, and has been featured in numerous business publications, including Business Insider, CNN Money, The Economist, Entrepreneur Magazine, and more. He partners leaders and businesses to make sure that their leadership development strategies are fit for purpose. Rob's perspective is that if you get that right, then you minimise operational risk caused by performance gaps at all levels, the individual, the group or team level and enterprise wide. He is particularly interested in corporate cultures of silence and cultures of voice and believes that leaders are not always aware of the influence and impact they have on their people's behaviour and therefore what their people feel they can express and say. And I'm inclined to agree with him. You will hear Rob get very impassioned when he talks about the damage that corporate silence does to people at work. Why this interest in our fear of speaking up? My sense is it comes from a profound appreciation for the suffering that his grandfather survived against the horrific injustice of genocide and an equally profound gratitude and respect for the opportunity and insight that that has given him. It's like he sees and feels the echoes of terrible leadership and the suffering it inflicts on people in what he witnesses in his clients' organisations today. He says we can do better in leadership, much better. To get into the conversation that we want to have today, um, I'd love to hear from you, given what you do, who are your stakeholders? Who are the people that you have to influence um, day to day? Well, the target people, the target audience are leaders. And it doesn't really matter what level they are in the organization. If they have people who rely on them for support, guidance, direction, and hope, they're part of the target population. And 
what I try to do in my work, in our work, is to take away any sort of any responsibility that a leader might take for granted. I think a lot of times leaders don't realize the, the extent to which they influence people. And one of the things that I say often is that we develop organizations one leader at a time. Uh, it's so important that every interaction is well thought out, and not so that it's a distraction, but that it's never taken for granted because the repercussions of positive constructive interactions last forever and the repercussions of a destructive interaction last even longer than that. So leaders have to know the influence they have and that every single word, thought, expression, nonverbal that they emanate has an impact. And on that point then, Rob, why do you think it is that leaders are not aware of the impact of what they say? It's very hard to say, even generally, why this is so. I suspect that it's because of an overwhelming focus on immediate results. Get immediate results. Get positive immediate results. There's a lot of pressure on leaders to do that. And when that is overwhelming for leaders, or when it is the target and focal point, of leaders overwhelmingly, what they do is leave out the human element or let that be second, third, or fourth on their radar screen. That's what I suspect. Do you think there's an element of, because sometimes when I'm talking to leaders, they are, they're not aware that people hang on what they say quite as much as they do. And for them, they are just in conversation or they're making a request or a demand (laughs) in some cases. It's almost like they're not sure that why someone, why people A, might listen to them or why what they say would carry so much weight. And it's something that I've been pondering, you know, for a while because I work in a similar space to you, as you know, and there's a, in some conversations with leaders, there's, there's almost like a, a really, they, people really watch me that much yeah. or they really hang on everything I say, or it means that much to them. And so there's, a, there's an aspect of surprise there, which is why I asked you the question. Yeah, uh, you're so right. It's just astounding to me that you can be at the top of an enterprise and take for granted the level, the profound level of influence you have. And I say to leaders in in formal settings, every single thing you do or don't do or say or don't say is under a microscope. Everything. (laughs) And I go into this whole list what you say, what you don't say, when you come to work, when you don't come to work, who's in your office, who's not in your office, is the door closed, is it open, when are you on the phone, when are you not on the phone, who gets the project, <laughs> who doesn't get the project, uh, yeah. if we go to lunch, if you go to lunch, when you send the text, when you don't send the text, when the emails go up, to whom the emails go up, everything is under a microscope and subject to the interpretation of the employee culture that they don't check in to say, we notice you're sending text messages at 12 o'clock at night. We just assume that means your, your expectation is that we too should be working at 12 o'clock at night. They don't check that. They just make that assumption. It becomes an interpretation, which becomes a fact, which gets socialized throughout the employee culture. And there you go. It becomes a norm. Nobody hands it back 
to in an editorial format to say, gee, or a draft format. Um, Mr. and Ms. Leader, uh, this is the assumption we're making based on this litany of text messages that came after working hours. And here's our interpretation. Is this right? No, they just make the assumption and they go along. And so leaders sit up straight when we have this conversation. If they don't know, you're absolutely right. I remember a conversation I had with a a CEO, my client, of a a global uh, retail organization. And I said, do you know what people are saying most about you? And this person said, no, what? I said, that you, you eat lunch in the cafeteria. And his response was, well, I have to eat. And I said, well, you never just eat. If you're the CEO, you never just eat lunch in the cafeteria. The fact that you are among everybody, every worker, when they're there and that you sit down at the tables and you ask, what's happening? What are you working on? Who are you? Where do you work? That has meaning to them. And he found it. He said, really? I said, yes, absolutely. Really? So the bottom line here is we absolutely have to continue to talk to leaders about the influence they have on others, especially at the top of the house. They're insulated and we have to show them and tell them that they can't take for granted the intensity of influence they have on other people. Intensity is a great word because they do. They are they're on stage effectively, and uh, and their attention is sought so much by those around them. How easily you get um, ear time with the CEO um, matters to people. Um, it's a currency, and it's important to be aware of that. I think you're absolutely right that the employee culture is always scanning for messages from the management culture. And they do that because their number one job, this is what my my friend and colleague Stan Slap says all the time, is that they're trying to figure out, the employee culture that is, is trying to figure out how to survive in the management culture. And so they scan for messages to help them figure out and make sense of their survival. How are they going to do this? And so the, that means that the volume that the leader community speaks is much louder than they think because you're right. The employee culture is scanning constantly for meaning and interpretation of the meaning, not because they're insidious, but because they're trying to survive under the direction of the current management structure. Yeah, absolutely. You hear people talking, don't you, uh, saying things like, uh, I can't get time with her. Um, I can't, you know, uh, I've tried and, and all my meetings get cancelled at the last minute or, right? So, but if you do have influence um, as it's perceived and you can get time with them, then, um, you know, you're a, an important person to know because potentially you're a route to them. And survival is is the great word here. Um, absolutely. I wonder if we can switch tack a little bit because I'd love to hear about outside of work, Rob, who are you, who do you have conversations with? Who's important in that space when you're not um, doing your work? When I'm not doing my work, I'm on two boards. And I guess you could consider that work. So 
you know, I tend to be the maverick. I tend to be the one who says, well, wait a minute, I see this a little bit differently. I'm aware of groupthink. I'm aware of the dynamics of premature agreement. And so based on that awareness, I tend to be the one who comes to the table to say, well, hold on a minute. Let's think about this. Let's consider this. I see this differently. Let me tell you what my view is. I do that very consciously, not to be an obstructionist, but to be the person who says, let's not go to premature agreement because we want to be a harmonious group or we want to protect our membership in the group. Then I have my social system and my influence, I believe, is the listening piece of my interaction with people. And I do that because in social settings, I tend to observe people hijacking conversations nonstop. So nobody's really listening to anybody. So someone will make a statement about a preference or I like this, or I'm going to this place on my holiday. And within a nanosecond, another person in that social circle will hijack the conversation and start talking about where they're going or what they're doing. It's really comical. So I try not to do that. I try to focus on listening. And I have this rule that I propose, especially when I'm working with MBA students. I, I teach in an executive MBA program at a university in Southern Florida, which is part of the state university system. And I say, okay, there's a rule that I want you to try and track called the 2080 rule. And I want you to talk and tell about 20% of the time and listen and learn 80% of the time. And then we get into learn orientation and it works. I mean, it's nobody's going to audit that ratio, but I want people to be aware and fully conscious of the fact that if they're talking and telling 80% of the time, then they're not listening and they're not influential. And uh, it's amazing the, the feedback I get from uh, leaders with whom I work and my students when they try and we call it try it, track it, when we try and track this ratio. So socially, I have a, a circle of folks that I interact with regularly. Now, some of it is face-to-face. -face. A lot of it is face-to-face. -face. And a lot of it is text messaging. And I apply the same inquiry advocacy ratio. So rather than making a statement, I don't think you should, why don't you, I'll always ask, how did you get to this place? Or how did you make this decision? Or what was the criteria for this decision? I want to ask before I tell. Because the last thing I want to do is engage in some back and forth ping pong conversation. It just goes nowhere. Right. Can we just jump back to the, you know, the 80-20 rule you were talking about? What is it that people notice when you get them to do that exercise? How much more information they get from their workforce and how valuable that information is. Right. It's the number one thing that I hear from people. I never thought they would, they, they say things generally like, I didn't know how capable my people were of solving problems that I thought I had to be the one to solve. So they learn, oh, I can leverage my resources and they are a little bit more competent than I have given them credit for. And I don't have to be the one that comes to the table with all the answers or all the, uh, the, the proposals. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like <laughs> the realization is a relief. It's got to be, right? Yes, it's kind of a relief. That's what they say. Uh, I, I don't have to carry that around on my shoulders. And they don't. And it's sort of like it's the first lesson of uh, leadership is use your your resources. Use your resources. Develop your resources. Strengthen your resources. That's your job. Your job is not to do all of their work 
or to check in like you're on a production line in nineteen forties. Uh, but your job is to develop and to prepare your your workforce so that they're fully capable of making uh, decisions and solving problems without you. Right. They're in the doing mode rather than the being mode. They forget that that's, that's in fact what their role now is. It's true. And to take that a, a little further, if we do root cause analysis, why is that? Why is there this hovering, checking propensity? Why? Is the environment threatening? Is, is there a punishment routine if something is wrong? Why is it? And I suspect that's the case, but I think we can hold leadership accountable for most of the interaction dynamics and, and most of the development opportunity and the autonomy that they provide. And in addition, I think we have to ask if leaders are not able to do this, is, that a, is this a trait or is it a state? And that's a critical answer. If it's a state of one's personality, or a trait, rather, I'm sorry, then there's an intervention there that's very one-on-one. But it's, if it's a state, then there's an enterprise-wide intervention that has to occur. And so we can't apply a solution until we know what that root cause is. Also about your the 80-20 the rule, I think there is this generally, not just among leaders, and, and you talked about people wanting to hijack conversations. There's a talking at people, you know, is not helpful on a number of fronts. One, it stops you from getting useful information, as you just explained, but also shuts people down in terms of, you know, well, okay, so you've told me how wonderful you are. (laughs) And I haven't made a connection with you. I'm not sure you know, what, why you want to tell me that, why that's important. But this, this need to talk at people is so widespread. Um, and um, and certainly difficult habit to break. Um, and I see it a lot among salespeople, particularly junior and inexperienced, but also some, you know, quite seasoned um, salespeople who've been in, in that space for a very long time. What are your thoughts about that? I think the 2080 rule applies and you're absolutely right. The talking at people is destructive. And you've said it perfectly. It shuts people down. They stop listening. And when I ask leaders about group settings uh, and the 2080, I ask them what's going on. What are the listeners doing when, in particular, if they talk about other leaders who dominate the conversation <laughs> and do nothing but talk and tell. And, and I say, well, what, what is everybody else doing in the room non-verbally? And what I hear most is pushing back away from the centerpiece, the table, pushing back, leaning back, leaning out, and eye rolling. Oh, oh, that's really engaging. So uh, if you don't like that, if you don't want to be on the receiving end of that, don't be on the delivering end of that. So my posit is the leader's job is selfless. It's never about the leader. It's always about other people, other center, not self-centered, never. And if you have a high need for self-affirmation, approval, you're going to have a hard time as a leader. You have to have a secure attachment in order to be an effective leader. And I'm not sure enough of our leadership population 
is securely attached. Meaning, if you're familiar with John Bowlby's work and attachment theory, very profound and very instrumental in the way leaders show up today and meaningful, is that if you are attachment anxious, that shows up at work. And if you're attachment secure, that shows up at work. It's easier for the securely attached leader to be other-centered. They can ask leaders. They can ask other people for their views and opinions. You know, we have this iceberg of ignorance that we show. It came out of a quality conference in Tokyo, I believe. I don't remember the exact citation, but what it shows, this research was that 100% of operational problems are known by the lowest levels in the organization. And when you get up to the C-suite in four categories above, only 4% of operational problems are known at the senior levels. 4%. And you might say 96% of the problem information goes away because that's why we pay people to solve problems. Yes. But even if 5% of that 96% represented significant risk to an organization, would you want to know about it? And the answer universally is absolutely. So the question becomes, what are you doing to encourage upward communication and upward knowledge flows? Because everything you do, every interaction you have is either a credit or a debit to the upward communication knowledge transfer dynamic. And then we get into the space of ethical blindness and uh, not wanting to share stuff because you think that audience doesn't want to hear it or isn't engaged or not interested in it, right? Yes. Oh, now you're talking about the mum effect, which is uh, very prevalent in organizations. So this research is fabulous. It was actually, the, the seminal work is back to the 1970s, Tesser and Rosen they did research in the medical community and what they found was that doctors had a hesitancy to communicate bad information to their patients because they didn't think the patient could hear it, so they withheld it. And I think the mum effect operates quite effectively in organizations. I mean, it's ineffective, but it operates quite a bit where a leader, well, I don't think they can hear this information, maybe not overtly um, saying this, but they withhold. And when we look about the feedback dynamic, I wonder just how many uh, members of the employee culture are missing important feedback that could help them because the leader is fearful of the response. Yeah, the mum effect, which I characterize as the minimization of undesirable messages, that wasn't Rosen and Tessa's intent. It wasn't their acronym, but that's how I characterize it. And I try to use it as a way to help leaders become more influential. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. When you're helping them be more influential, is there an aspect of that which is about facing the truth, digging into some more important personal values that maybe sit around, you know, integrity or standards or whatever, whatever your value set may be and seeing having that as the thing that overrides and helps you overcome any, any hesitancy or fear that you might have about delivering a bad message or giving some feedback. And the other piece of it, is it a language thing? Do we not have the language that helps us even begin a conversation, continue a conversation, know how to phrase something? There are two things there. One, you're asking about, I believe, values-based leadership and, and living the value of integrity or living the value of achievement. You, you said standards, but I equate that to achievement value. 
And the other is, uh, sounds to me a bit more tactical. Like, what is the actual language that I use? And it's interesting. Both of those questions are interesting. I see them as separate constructs. So in the values aspect, I think if the leader makes their values clear, and I know that my dear friend and colleague Stan Slap would agree that's his area of expertise, values-based leadership, is that if you live your values every day and your constituency understands in no uncertain terms why your values are important to you and what they stand for and where they come from, then the employee culture can get behind it. They can commit to it. They can live it all. So if you just say, oh, I value integrity, well, that's nice. Uh, Just write it down on a piece of paper so I don't forget it. But if you disclose the reason why, Integrity is important. Uh, and Stan calls it one's moment of truth. It's the story behind the declaration. Uh, then it becomes real for your constituency. You can live it. We know why. We can get behind it. The other aspect of the interaction that you bring up is the tactical pieces of what's the language do I, that I use? And you know, this is surprising to me. Working with organizations at leadership at any level I am often surprised by the lack of certainty and confidence in very basic language use. What do I actually say before I respond? And I won't hand out a script. That's sort of, I don't know, babyish. We talk about the needs of every human being, which are around self-esteem and dignity and the difference between constructive feedback and destructive feedback, and then the traits of those who are on the receiving end of either of those two types of feedback. So there's a duality, but there's almost a a two-by-two quad of uh, matrix. You have the message receiver and the message deliverer. So if the message deliverer is low on confidence and delivering messages that are potentially destructive, we have a reaction from the receiver that is that lowers trust, that is perceived as a personal attack, that ruins the relationship between the two, and it degrades the organizational commitment. So it's very complicated. I think leaders need to work on both of those aspects of interaction, the values-based element aspect, and also the tactical. Rob, I'm, uh, as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing a deep passion and um, commitment to, you know, making this world um, better. And certainly, you know, for, for not just for the leaders, but for the people in those organizations. And why is this important to you? Okay. Basically, this is a great question. 35% of my practice is uh, assessment and coaching. And when we do assessments, we never let the coachee, the leader, sit with information alone, data. We always do a debrief. Now, maybe that's just general per, uh, standard practice, but we really take it seriously. And I've coached, done assessment and coaching for thousands of leaders around the world. And what I've heard uh, basically gives me the impression that there's a lot of suffering in organizations, emotional suffering. Not cognitive suffering, like I just can't understand. I can't get this strata. I, I don't know how to do this. Not that. That's solvable. But the emotional suffering that I have heard as I have made my way over the last 15 years 
is just astounding to me. And there has to be a better way. Leaders have to step up to the plate and really sharpen their interaction skills. And there are a lot of cases where I say, okay, you should not be in this role. You don't like it. There's something going on in your life, in your world. There's something that's happened in your life, in your world that has produced a worldview that is not healthy for a workforce and not healthy for you nor the organization. What are your options? Too much suffering, just too much. Now, there's a lot of happiness and there's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of energy, but I think about how much more powerful, influential, helpful we could be in organizations and to the greater society and to the world in which we live and contribute if we could get rid of even 30% of some of the pain and suffering, emotional pain and suffering and destruction that goes on in organizations. It is solvable. Mm. I think, you know, on a the positive side to that is that there's a growing awareness, isn't there, that our mental health at work um, is important and we, we're getting better at being more open, but we've still got a long way to go. And so there will continue to be a lot of emotional suffering in that space. I wonder if I could take your view on something else, um, something that I've been, that sits in my mind a great deal. Um, uh, and I wondered whether you might have a perspective on it that um, may frame it differently for me. In this whole sort of startup, scale up, new venture, founder, fame world that we live in, um, where everyone's seeking, you know, the next greatest thing that's going to give them a, a global platform um, or a global profile. I have a fear that we are entering into a territory where we're chasing the wrong stuff that people are drawn to, you know, the fame that being a founder gives you that is celebrated. Um, and you can go through several rounds of funding and not be profitable, but that's okay because you've got a, you know, a public persona. I wonder whether that's setting us up for uh, more emotional hurt um, within organizations. Well, here's my hope, that the entrepreneurial spirit comes from a personal need for achievement and the pursuit of greatness and uh, idea generation and wonderment. I hope that it comes from a good place. I hope that it's not a shallow desire. There are lots of ways to get attention and to, uh, to achieve fame and, and wonderment. And I, I think if you want to be a stage actor, go to Hollywood, you know, roll the dice. But my hope is that the entrepreneurial spirit that drives so much of the innovation that we see today, whether it amounts to anything or not, um, is uh, coming from a very good place, I hope. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, there's some wonderful stuff being created, but there's also just the space that I work in. I see, uh, I wonder about, you know, um, the importance, you know, we were talking earlier about leaders and not appreciating the weight of what they say and how that lands for people and the impression that makes on people. 
And but there's also this other wave happening um, that I see where there's a, you know, everyone's trying to rub shoulders with the right person and, and get the right profile. And 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 a lot of people talk about even LinkedIn becoming this place where it's about it's very self-congratulatory. Um, it's moved away from being a source of useful information sharing <laughs> to more of a look at me. Um, aren't I fantastic? I'm doing this. Um, and so people are engaging with that in a, in a different way or switched off completely. So, but that to me says that there's a hunger for recognition, acknowledgement from our peers. Um, and that's, it's, it's there. I haven't got the answer myself, but I just, there's something about it that unsettles me, um, in that desire to be seen and known. Yeah. And, and why does it, why is it unsettling for you? I guess you're supposed to ask me the questions, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's very interesting when you talk about LinkedIn, because I've seen this trend as well. And I'll give you an example, if I may. So I do key speeches, right? And I have somebody who helps me with social media. And so they take sound bites out of these speeches, quick hits, they're very quick, poignant, one minute or less, and they get posted to social media. And twice in the last month, we were um, at charity events and two pictures were posted separately. Those pictures, they're just pictures in LinkedIn, got 40% more attention than the content one minute or less clip. That was astounding to me. It was a picture. Here we are at charity event X. Here we are at charity event Y. So it just kind of blew my mind, but it's exactly what you're talking about. I, you know, I think social media platforms have given others a pseudo red carpet opportunity. You're right. It is a little troubling. It's very selfish. I mean, yes, it's selfish, but um, the, the unsettling piece for me is it says that they're not grounded in who they are. And, uh, you know, they're going for the dopamine hit. And it's, yes, I get that you have to self-promote. We all do. But there's an appetite for it that I just feels unhealthy to me. It feels like it's over the top. I don't know what it is. I'm probably uh, (laughs) upsetting a lot of people by what I'm saying, but it just doesn't feel like it's genuine, like it's grounded in. I don't. I don't actually know who that person is by what they've shared. I've just know. All I know is that they want lots of likes and they want to. Uh, you know, they want that pat on the back. I don't actually know them any better. And that, you know, in the space that we work in, is you know, is the complete opposite of where where we try and support people. Right. Right. I think the dichotomy is meaningful versus meaningless. I mean, an image at a charity event or whatever, okay, it's it's instantaneous, but there's no content. There's no takeaway. There's no, uh, there's no knowledge shared. So I absolutely agree with you. And I think that, you know, I'm very happy that you brought that up because it's now giving me pause to lean more towards that instantaneous, oh, if that's what people want, I'll give them more of that. But no, I think you're right. I'm glad you brought that up. I think I have to get back to the roots of sharing knowledge with people. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think we need to be aware of that and know how to do it. And if you take that inside an organization, uh, one of the things that is uh, enabling about a culture of voice is that 
it speeds up knowledge transfer, especially across silo, meaningful knowledge. And what we know to be true from the research is that cultures of silence slow or stop knowledge transfer. And knowledge is valuable. It leads to all sorts of things, in particular innovation results and idea generation and problem results. If we stop it, if if our culture stops it or slows it, then it prolongs or or, uh, degrades the problem-solving process when it needs to be quick, nimble, and responsive. It slows the innovation process. It slows or stops the idea generation process when we really need it to speed up and go at lightning speed. So uh, that's sort of what's coming up for me as a result of the discussion. And it, it is, and you've brought it back into the sort of the workspace, which I think is is key because it's a risk to uh, an organisation if if you're chasing something that is about air, getting airtime and a pat on the back and recognition rather than truly being useful to those around you um, and in service of you know what you're there to do um, and that exchange. We're going to take a quick break. And we'll be back right after this. Better conversations. We all want to have them at work. Have you often felt that your colleagues haven't always received your communication in the way you'd like? Or that you struggle to express yourself clearly on issues that matter? When someone can communicate with clarity, confidence and empathy, their team becomes inspired. As leaders, part of helping our team to do their job effectively is to motivate and guide our people to deliver on their goals. And when we're equipped with coaching and communication skills, it provides a platform to be our strongest and most confident self, a leader everyone trusts. Did you know it's the number one skill that sets the top leaders apart from the rest? That's why we've created a 12-week online course hosted by executive coach Siham Cyrene, helping you to navigate those meaningful conversations with skill and compassion. Enroll today at leaderswhocoach.today. Tell me about someone who's been most influential in the way you hold conversations. Someone who's been influential on your, your style. There are two actually. And one was my father who said to me, when you ask a question, have a tolerance for silence. And I said, well, how do I do that? And he said, I want you to count to 45. You ask a question of someone with whom you're engaging in a conversation and ask, ask the question like you want to know the answer, not like you're waiting to get your thoughts in there. Just count 45. And, and see what happens. And it's amazing to me. So I tried, all right, daddy says I should try it. I'll try it. And I did. And it was amazing. And in a leadership capacity, it's very interesting to see what people do when they ask questions. So I took, I, I coined it the 45 second rule. And it's a cousin of the 2080 rule. So the 2080 generally says, okay, in, an, in, in my leadership role, I'm going to talk and tell 20% of the time and ask and learn. 80% of the time. In a meeting setting, how that works is I ask my team, for example, okay, we have problem X. What ideas do we have? And we get what I call the bovine stare, which is that blank look from everybody and then silence. Well, there's a reason for that. 
And so I, I ask leaders to try the 45 second rule and watch what happens. I said, you won't get to 40 and they never do. They longest is, I think someone said they got to 40 seconds. Someone in the team will break the silence. And I said that you have to use this to break the pattern, which I call it the cycle of dependency. So normally, the silence tolerance when we're asking for input from our teams is about five seconds. And if there's silence, then the leader says, okay, well, here's what I think we ought to do. And they jump in with their stuff. Well, if that happens enough, it becomes the norm. So the employee culture says, well, oh, our, our boss asked, to, asked us a question for our input, but really all we have to do is wait five seconds and then they, they will come in and tell us what they really want, which is safer than us participating in this process. Uh, we have to break that cycle if we're going to allow people uh, appropriate levels of autonomy in an economy that requires rapid, nimble, responsive, and flexible uh, problem-solving, client problem-solving, and idea generation. We can't be uh, a sticking to an antiquated structure, decision-making structure, an approval structure that has to go up every rung in the hierarchy and then back down before it finally gets to the person who's in the solution. That won't work in the digital economy. It will be a failure. I don't mean to sound like, you know, I don't want to catastrophize, but we can do better and we have to do better. And that means leaders have to wrap their arms around not only the process, but on the ego implications of allowing, enabling, and supporting appropriate levels of autonomy. If I'm giving you decision-making authority and you're three levels down, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to my identity as the senior leader in this organization? There's that element we have to deal with. Because until we do, we do, it's just not going to happen. Well, and it's it's limiting to your own organization. It's very short-sighted, right? It's uh, if you become the bottleneck and everything has to pass by you or you have to be the one that comes up with the great ideas, um, why are you hiring all these people, <laughs> right? What, what are they here for? Um, absolutely. It's interesting because it's, a, you know, asking a question and then falling silent, as in being quiet, is so simple and incredibly powerful and, and yields so much. But uh, for something so simple, it's, it eludes so many people, right? Yeah, it is simple. Just start counting, ask the question, open-ended, of course, how can't we or how should we? And then just the other rule is the shut up and listen rule. Just shut up and listen and you'll be amazed at the things you hear. And it's the other, the second most common response I get from leaders is that it, they're shocked at the level of engagement when they allow people to participate without dominating the, the interaction. I don't have to be at the center of all of this. I don't. Not me, but that's what they say. You mentioned two people. One was your dad. Um, who's the second person? My friend and colleague, and I'm going to say her name, Ann Rogers. Ann has been in the OD space for a long time. And she is one of the most selfless leaders that I have ever met in my life. Ann is always interested in others. 
She's always asking and listening, and she does it in a way that you know she's interested and really cares about what she's hearing. And she has this way of acknowledging and legitimizing what you say without judgment. I, and, and what that means is I love spending time with her. I love talking with her. You know, we have try to have lunch every quarter at least. And I look forward to it because it's my space. You know, you and I are in the same OD space and we're always giving to people. And how do we take care of ourselves? You know, now I'm being a little selfish, but Anne is influential in that I can really go through the sense-making process with issues that are important to me without any interruption. And I only hope that I do the same for her. She's a very dear friend who I respect tremendously. So those are the two people who have influenced me most in the interaction space. What you described there is holding a space for each other, right? What you do for your clients, um, you have someone who holds a similar space for you. Yes, nicely said. You've written a book, Rob. Tell me more about that. The book I wrote with my friend and colleague, uh, Chris Casper who is an expert in uh, emotional intelligence. Chris uh, studied with Solovey and Mayer, who did the seminal work on emotional intelligence. She's very fortunate to have that experience. And so I thought she was very important uh, part of the, the team to write the book on culture through silence. I actually got a copy of your book and um, it's... Um, I. I've enjoyed reading it. I'm I'm most of the way through. Oh, thank you. And um, so, yeah, I I managed to get my hands on it, and um, it's fascinating because you you quantify uh, very clearly. You know, what does it look like to listen? Uh, what are you doing in the moment? Um, I love the assessments and so on that you that you have in the book. Why was that an important book to get written? Well, it came from my research and it troubled me that silence was causing such emotional pain. Here we go back with the emotional pain. It wasn't cognitive. It was emotional. And the thing in particular that troubled me most through, uh, throughout the entire sample population, the study population, was self-doubt. When people had experienced interactions that, that led them to choose silence as a, as a survival mechanism, one of the consequences was they began to doubt their efficacy and they began to doubt their value system. And I thought that was just short of criminal. I mean, I don't, I'm sorry if that sounds dramatic, but they didn't know each other. But yet they all describe the exact same emotional consequence. They said things like, generally, I began to doubt myself. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Maybe I don't have it right. Maybe, maybe I am wrong. Maybe, maybe this has all just been made up in my own head. And and these were highly successful people, C-sweet people. And I thought, this is not right. This should not be happening. This is destructive. And, and we as organizations can do better. We can do better than this where we're shortchanging ourselves as an enterprise. And we can be so much better than this if we can solve this issue. And the other thing that 
is true for me, which you don't know, is uh, my my background and my value of respect. And, you know, I'm the grandson of genocide survivors. And the only reason why I sit here talking to you is because my grandfather survived a death march based on religious persecution. And I think about that pain and that horror and and that inhumanity and the suffering. And I think, okay, no one should suffer and deal with it by being silent. No one. That we, we have to talk and with each other and communicate with each other on a constructive and a civilized way so that we can get through the issues that are uh, that are our barriers, that are um, that are potholes, whatever whatever analogy we use. It's just let's figure out how to get beyond it so that we can put it behind us and move to the finish line, the goal line. What are we actually trying to do? It's noise. It's painful noise, but it's noisy, and it creates a destructive cycle. The energy that's spent trying to sense make in organizations due to some dysfunction that's rooted in an interaction. We have to be better at it, and we can't be better at it until we talk about it, and we can't talk about it until we start to name it, and that name is a culture of voice. What you say about people doubting themselves um, is yeah, the result of a, of a not pleasant interaction with somebody, a conversation or, a, you know, a sequence of events or repeat, you know, behavior that you're enduring. And, um, and it does make us fall silent. It, make, it makes us acquiesce uh, and give up. And um, that can be a really uh, hard place to come back from. And you say, you know, is that criminal? I, I, I don't think that's too strong a word. I think we're a little careless in what we say and the impact that that has on, on other people around us, particularly those in service, um, right? Uh, they've committed to somebody else's vision uh, they're getting behind it and they want to be part of something and it's careless and thoughtless and potentially ethically compromised to think that you can just say anything or that you don't have to take care with your choice of words or your behavior um, as a leader. And um, and so I think I, I wholeheartedly agree with you I don't, because when someone is in that place, that's a very difficult place to come back from. And so, you know, obviously best not get there in the first place. So everyone needs a voice. What can people do? What would be one or two simple steps that someone who's in that position, who has lost their voice, so to speak, what can they do to comfort themselves? Comfort themselves. Well, it depends on how one achieves comfort. Is it emotional comfort or is it some other form of comfort. If you're silent in an organization and you've given up, in other words, you've just, you've given into, you're, you, it's futile, not even going to bother anymore. Uh, that sense of cynicism leads to a contraction of discretionary effort. Now, if you have an achievement motive, that can't feel good. And so figuring out how to have a voice in a system that isn't inclined to allow that is important. And so there are a few things that people can do who are in that situation. Number one is to know the difference between high challenge language and low challenge language. And high challenge language 
is when we use absolute. So we tend to be, we behave a little bit like passive aggressive. So we say nothing, say nothing, say nothing. And then all of a sudden we burst through the, the boundaries and we say, this is a problem. We can't, we shouldn't, you always, it never stay away from that. So that's high challenge language. Low challenges of language is, you know, I see this problem a little differently. Do you want to hear about it? Do you want to hear my view? So there are two possible answers. Yes, I do. No, I don't. Okay, if the answer from the leadership is no, I don't, you've tried. If the answer is yes, I do, okay, this is how I see it. And just present your view. So the last part of the presentation, the view presentation is, how do you react to that? How does this land on you? What do you think about my view? Is there any part of it that resonates with you? Is there anything that you like about that viewpoint? Now, what tends to happen is when viewpoints are expressed, so there's a little bit of a gateway, we hear a preponderance of discounting interaction, which is huge. It's the number one thing I hear from my clients and my MBA students is discounting is prevalent. And this is Tim Weaver's work from Boston University. Discounting, can you give an example of what that would sound like? So if you and I are talking and and you say, Rob, what we have to do in the OD space is we need to hold workshops on positive interactions. And I say to you, oh, we've tried that a million times and it never worked. That's, that's, That's a discount. So it does two things. It has a tendency to dent your sense of self-worth, dent it, not ruin it, but dent it, especially if I'm in a power position. And secondly, and most importantly, it stops the conversation. So I've said to you, we're not talking about that. And I say, okay, there's an option here, leaders. You have an option. You can do that. And the other thing you can do is take that idea as given. And let's say it's half-baked. You have two options. You can tear it down or you can build it up. So tear down shuts down the synapses in the brain. The inquiry piece, the build-up piece actually expands them. And it stimulates the dialogue and the thought process. So I could say, well, tell me more about that. How would that work? How is that similar or different from what we did three years ago? Like, I really want to know, not like an inquisition or, or um, an indictment, but like, I really want to know and, and then shut up and listen. So you can see how in the interaction process, those rules come into play. <laughs> oh, for sure they do. But, um, but, and Rob, we're back in that. How do you have a conversation? right? How do you start that conversation? Just you saying, which is a great example, which is to say, well, I see it differently. Just adopting even that phrase as part of how um, you go to work um, is enormously helpful to people because it changes the energy. It changes the way someone's approaching it. For someone to say no is potentially rude. <laughs> so you're almost forcing, uh, you know, a different point of view being allowed um, to be discussed. Um, Versus if I go to my leader and I say, we have a very serious problem with client alcohol drops in the call center. We have got to do something about this. Well, if I'm the leader that has my fingerprint on the call center process, uh, I'm not, I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. So 
yeah, yeah. Why don't I get back to you on that? But I never do because I never have any attention to. However, if I come to my leader and I say, so based on the latest call drop reports, uh, they're running around 30%. Is that okay with you? No, it's not. You know, it isn't okay with me either. And, and I have a couple of thoughts uh, and I want to run them by, are you open to that? So you see, we're using inquiry rather than advocacy. We're, use, we're asking and we're not telling. So even on the other side, where we're in the employee side, we're pushing up, we're issue selling, as Jane Dutton would call it. We're, we're pushing communication and knowledge up the hierarchy. Now we're dealing with ego dynamics. So that pushes a lot of skill level at those who are lower in the ranks, who, according to the iceberg of ignorance, have all the information. Now, if the leader isn't asking, hey, what are you noticing about call reports? If they're not asking that question, then if somebody wants to bring it up, you have to bring it up in a way that's A, non-threatening, B, generally low challenge. And the best way to do that is through inquiry. I know something about this. Do you, and I have some views about how we might be able to make it better. Are you open to hearing? Yes, I am. Great. When can we have that discussion? Oh, check my calendar. No, I'm not. Okay. All right. If you change your mind, let me know. But I don't think it will be. <laughs> I think that's spot on. And and it is. It's being able to ask and, and be have an approach um, that works in those situations where emotions are highly charged. Um, you are in, you know, if you're going to a boss and doing it, there's hierarchy um, in that space. So you're having to navigate that as well. It's quite a tall order, isn't it, Rob, to, for, for an individual to have to navigate around a leader who doesn't know how to get the best out of people? Yeah, it is. It is. And if you're going to increase the likelihood of being heard and having a voice and moving valuable knowledge up in an organization, the inquiry, the low challenge inquiry is the best hope you have of being heard. And it doesn't always work. So one of the cases that I'm thinking of is, uh, it's US-based, I'm sorry. And it's, uh, it was a manufacturer. No need to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, I feel like I don't, I know I have cases that are UK-based, but I feel like I don't want to do that. So there's a, there was a case in uh, the ice cream manufacturing business mm-hmm. here in the U.S. This was a couple of years ago. And uh, a member of one of the manufacturing on the line in, the, in one of the sites, there were two sites, one in southern, southwest and one in southeast uh, United States. And um, one of the members of the manufacturing team raised I think it was a woman raised her hand and said to her supervisor, line supervisor, something's wrong here with these ingredients. Something's wrong. The texture, the odor, it's not done. There's something wrong. And the leader said, just be quiet and get back to work. Now, not only did she hear that, but everybody around her heard that. And the interpretation was, don't bring up any problems to this leader. That's how it was socialized. And what happened was there was contamination in the supply chain. And what the CDC noticed is that there were wisteria cases broken out and being reported in the periphery of this facility. So in the emergency rooms, people were showing up with wisteria. And then they noticed it near the other site 
And lo and behold, it was in the supply chain and the plant, both plants were shut down and they almost went out of business. They had to go to an outside financing source for a mega loan to stay in business. They had to shut down for, I think it was 60 days or 90 days. I'm not sure of the exact duration, but that's an example where uh, a culture of silence was prevalent and, and nearly caused an organizational death. And I see these cases all the time. As a matter of fact, you know, there was a, just the other day here in the U.S., there was a uh, drugstore, retail drugstore that was indicted on charges that they overcharge the public health system for medication that was not being dispensed. I believe that was the story. It's recent, clearly a, paper, a, a culture of science, clearly. So when these stories come up in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Tribune, I could put my finger on them and say, ah, culture of silence right there, right there. And lo and behold, the minute I hear the CEO say, I knew nothing about this, or the CFO say, I didn't know anything about this, I say to myself, oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did. I'll bet you did. And lo and behold, nine times out of, ca- nine times out of 10, they do. Well, and even if you didn't, there's a case for saying you should have, <laughs> right? Right. So if it wasn't you that was shutting conversations down, you've created a culture at the level below yeah. you that is that is doing that, is being the gatekeeper on your yes, behalf. Yes, that's exactly true. So I think there's a duality here. And I'm glad that you brought up, you know, what can an individual do? So there's something that an individual can do. And, you know, look, and if it's high risk, don't do it. I'm sorry to say, don't don't put your job on the line if you need it to pay the mortgage and feed your family. I wouldn't advocate that. But your best chance of being heard in a culture of silence, one that's even halfway between voice and silence, is the inquiry. Get permission. And I have this conversation with you. Are you interested? That's permission. So permission, each step of the way. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, I am interested. Okay. Now you've involved the decision maker, the authority figure in the process versus hitting them over the head with a two by four, you know, that high challenge, um, passive aggressive response. Um, so that's one dimension. The other dimension is the leaders have to be listening. You know, they have to be prepared to listen. So in one of our organizational systems, we did this initiative called speak up, listen up. Cause I said, look, you can speak up all you want, but if nobody's listening, it doesn't matter. Eventually they'll stop talking. So yeah, there has to be that duality. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yes, they have to listen to, and that's a discipline on their part. This is the the time has flown by, Rob. Just to wrap up our chat today, um, are there any final thoughts that you would like to leave with listeners? I think for leaders, you can inculcate a culture of voice by doing one small thing, and and either it's shut up and listen rule or the 2080 rule, or the 45 second rule, or the no discounting rule, there are small things you can do in group settings or even individual settings that will encourage speak up culture and to convince your workforce that their voice has merit. And for those who are, who are members of the employee culture, just try it. If you have something to say that you think can improve, but you've hesitated to do it in the past, just give it a try it and track it and see if the uh, low challenge inquiry, the permission inquiry, step by step works. Try it in a, a, a you know a low risk situation and see if it makes a difference. 
I love what you've phrased there and suggested because really you just need to start somewhere and start with one of those. Um, and uh, you will, you know, just pausing in that way is going to open your eyes up um, and your ears as well. They're just observing and seeing what's, what, what's happening around you. So brilliant. I love that. I love that. Thank you very much for sharing that. You're, you're welcome. It, it starts one interaction at a time. You know, it's not some monumental big bang thing that happens. It's like, no, this happens one interaction at a time. Brilliant. Thank you, Rob. I've really enjoyed chatting with you today. Me too. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Your questions were great. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Better Conversations with me, Siham Cyrene. And if you did, Leaving me a lovely review and rating on Apple Podcast will help me reach more listeners who want to have better conversations at work and in their private lives. You can check out show notes at betterconversations.co forward slash podcast. If you're a regular subscriber, brilliant, lovely to have you back. And if this is your first time, hit subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend. A screenshot and an Instagram story would be going above and beyond. And I would be very grateful. Please tag me at Siham Cyrene, all one word, S-E-H-A-A-M-C-Y-R-E-N-E. And of course, I'll tag you right back. So what would you like to hear my future guests and I talk about? Or perhaps you would like to be my guest because you've got a strong point of view that you'd like to share or kick about with me on the podcast. Drop me a note, podcast at betterconversations.co. I'd love to hear from you. And if you are a leader who knows you could achieve so much more in your career and be way more influential by having better conversations and stronger relationships, then do consider enrolling for my 12-week online course, Leaders Who Coach. You'll find the curriculum, videos, and a whole load more at leaderswhocoach.today. Thanks for listening. I'm Siham Cyrene, and this has been a better conversation.